My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery on this for a bit, but I really appreciate, first of all, your flexibility with me last week. Um, just one of those days, man, I was having a tough day with the kids um, and like any parent does. Right. And it just was, it triggered me and I was struggling with being in a good mood and I can't do the podcast if I'm not feeling joyful, yes. you, you know, cause there's, there's an issue. It, it comes off, you know, you could tell that there's something wrong and I hate that. And I want to be there for you. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I get that. I got, I got young kids. So there's days where I can relate to dad's going out for cigarettes and not coming home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. right. There's there's days where I'm just like, man, that would be the easy way. Oh my gosh. Honest to God, bro. And I love my children, but they can, they would test the patience of, of St. Teresa for sure. Oh, easily. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Any kids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I am super excited and I appreciate you coming on my show. I really enjoyed being a part of and being able to contribute to your uh, Zoom meeting and your recovery hour, which I really, really enjoyed. And I had a, it was a great opportunity. So I appreciate that. And thank you for coming and sharing your story with Dismantle Life Podcast. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was great having you on there. You know, it's, I always like doing those ones. Usually it's people that show up to those meetings all the time. And I like throwing, you know, somebody that no one's heard of or only one other person's heard of. And it keeps it real fresh. And, you know, that whole week afterwards, people were, you know, messaging saying, Hey, when is he going to come back on? What did he say he was on? How can I find him? I got to hear more. (laughs) (laughs) I I like throw, I like throwing those little, you know, those little mystery ones out there. You know, we're all in this together. And I think it's important to hear other people's stories. And, And I always say, even on my show that it, our stories are always very much the same yet very different because, and the nice thing about, well, I, I, I think it's the nice thing about my podcast. I don't like to wallow in the tragedy of it. Meaning this isn't a gladiator school. We don't talk about how much we drank or how many lines we did. None of that crap. We get it. Right. And so let's just always assume going in that we've all got stories like that. Right. And what I like to talk about is kind of, what life was like before or pre-addiction and what life was like in the throes of your addiction. And then what that transition point was or what 
what was it that helped you put it down? Was it rock bottom? Was it, was it something else? And then that transition into the sunlight. So, and I like that thread because I don't like to spend a lot of time in the horror stories, in the war stories, because we've all woken up in ditches. We've all had bloody noses. We didn't know where we got it. We've all, all of that. So let's just always assume that's the axiom. And uh, I think that it's held true, thankfully, through all of my episodes. Today will be, let me just see here episode you'll be episode 59 that i'm recording uh, um which I is i got the alert you just put one out today earlier too i did yeah i did yep. and i've i've been so blessed with great guests who have come on and told their story and i, I love it i really do and i'm gonna take after i get through up to episode 59 i'm gonna take a couple of months off uh, from recording, not stop the show or anything, but just take a little bit of a break kind of between seasons almost and continue again. And the main reason is I just, with the move and all this other stuff we got going on, I have to kind of do some housekeeping of my own. Uh, yeah, and you got to re-energize yourself to keep yourself passionate. You know, yep. anytime you do something multiple times every single day or multiple times a week, you know, that, yeah. that magic can fade a little bit. So you need, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> Absolutely does. I'm going to... Uh, start. So I used to podcast. I've been, I've had a number of podcasts, but the, this one, and then the one that also has a big place in my heart is my how to tour Italy podcast, where I podcasted about travel to Italy and what to see and do there and all this wonderful stuff. And I was blessed to live there for a bit. So I'm reinvigorating it under a different name. I'm not going to share the name now. I'm kind of want to do like a little bit more of an unveiling, but the point is I'm in lucky. One of the gifts recovery has given me back is my passion for all the things that I loved and love. And that went away for a while when I was in the midst and in, in the real darkness of it all. And I'm grateful that I've it's come back in a wonderful way. And I'm going to take a slightly different approach to the other podcast, but it's all going to be the art, history, mythology, religion, essentially connecting the dots in a fun way. So when people go visit the sites, they understand why the David is cool beyond Michelangelo sculpting it, you know, mm -hmm. and talk about it in a fun way where they could learn and enjoy what they're seeing and connect some historical dots and all the great stuff. And I'm really, really excited about it. And thankfully, as we lead into your story, that's one of the gifts that recovery has given me also, along with saving my life and my family back and all that great stuff, of course. But I've been, as you just so eloquently said, kind of re-impassioned with all the great things. Like I, I'm a voracious reader and I stopped reading because I was drunk or coked up for so long that I, I wasn't able to read in like little things. Like you don't realize how much the drugs and the alcohol, uh, the drugs and the alcohol, excuse me, have taken away. And it's nice. All my guests always have that piece. What, what did they get back or what did they discover that they, they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. Yeah, that's funny. You say, you know, some people do like, you know, the drunk Amazon shopping or drunk things <laughs> like that. When I was when I was drinking, I was a drunk reader. I would finish so many books on a weekend in blackouts that like I have a whole basement full of books that I look at them. I'm like, I remember like maybe a quarter of that. So I've never I don't run out of books anytime soon now that I picked it back up. But right. man, that was my hobby is I would see just go through books and I would just be in a blackout. But that's how I could kind of center myself a little bit for my whole life loved reading and I love having the book in my hands and and I always keep my books not to show people all the great books that I've read I but I like to go back and reread books and yep. for just my own personal reference I just love it but I've just transitioned the listeners can't see this but you can I just transitioned 
to a Kindle, uh, Paperwhite. And it's interesting. I've, you know, I'm going to force myself to enjoy it because at the same time, as much as I love reading, I want to do my part to be more green and show my kids that you can read a book digitally and save a lot of trees. Um, the only mm -hmm. exception to that rule for me will be my art history books or the books that have lots and lots of pictures of the art where you do need that full color dynamic picture yep. um, of what it is you're reading about. Uh, that's the only exception. And, and think of coffee table books in that regard. Otherwise, I'm all Kindle all the time after I finish the book I'm reading right now about the Medici. So, yeah. It makes packing like, a lot easier, too. When you're going on a trip, you don't have to have a backpack just full of three books for a week. Right. It's all <laughs> right there. Right. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. I love it. Well, that's awesome, dude. So, Mike, I am so thrilled to have you on the show, brother. And I'm dying to dive right into your story and what life was like maybe pre-addiction. Yeah. Yeah, so... Pre-addiction, um, I grew up in, you know, normal childhood. I'm the oldest of three here in Michigan. Trauma is kind of a big thing for my story. Uh, I was three years old and I had an uh, aunt take me to our local high school um, swimming pool to go swimming. Um, my mom just had my middle brother who was, you know, a baby at the time. So give her a little break. They figured they could take me with my cousins and stuff. And uh I uh, got there and earliest memory, like I can still close my eyes today and I remember everything about it is, I don't know how I ended up, but I was underwater and I remember being underwater, looking up and not being able to reach up, not being able to swim. I remember vividly thinking my dad would tell me when we were swimming, if I kick my feet, I'll get up to the top. And I remember just kicking, and kicking, and kicking and then dark. And I, um, next thing I know, I woke up on the side of the pool, you know, mouth to mouth breathing from a lifeguard at three years old. And that really took me into like that formed an identity that even today, like I'm still working on not, not letting take over, you know, that forgotten. I constantly had that feeling I was always forgotten. You know, I was forgotten at the pool. Um, you know, I was lost a couple of times going to Disney World, you know, like where I just disappeared for half a day type of a thing. And I always fought that forgotten type of a thing. And, um, and it wasn't until I started figuring out that there was alcohol that, you know, I got boisterous, I got loud and I couldn't be forgotten that people, you know, remembered going to parties with Mike, you know, they remembered the good times that they had, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that it wasn't, it wasn't all fun and games because you know there were some good times like I hear at the meetings you know my best day sober or my worst day sober is better than my best day, day drinking like I had some good times when I was drinking um, it wasn't all you know I didn't hit that bottom right away and um, growing up in high school you know we did normal partying um, alcohol was the big thing uh, it wasn't until my senior year that I really started drinking I was going to go play football somewhere and had some injuries and that kind of took away the college aspect for me. And I just started drinking and it would be weekend drinking, uh, started out. And then when I would go to college, I would find, I found pot in college. So if I wasn't drinking on the weekends, I was smoking pot every day, all day. And all of a sudden I'd go to classes for a couple of weeks and then I'd wake up sick. And the only thing I had was either pot or marijuana. So that I'd smoke or drink and just, just kept that cycle going for years. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm married. I have a wife. 
we met when I was still drinking, not heavily. I went through phases where I could stop and only drink on the weekends. You know, I wasn't the daily drinker until the very end. Um, or if we were on like a vacation or, you know, that was the thing, special, special occasions, let me drink before noon, you know, let me drink for a whole week when we were on vacation or went deer hunting, then you could wake up and start drinking and just be in a blackout for a week straight. But then, you know, I deal with the sickness, deal with the shakes for three or four days, and then I'd be good until the following weekend. But we, you know, my wife and I, we ended up getting married. We moved out to Pennsylvania. So uh, both of our families are from Michigan. So we moved about 12 hours away, just the two of us, uh, no family around, just completely just us two. bought a house up in the Pocono Mountains, you know, no neighbors, completely isolated, like, um, and I was so comfortable with that isolation. And I didn't stop drinking. Um, we would, I remember when we moved there, the biggest thing that shocked me was I couldn't buy liquor at a gas station. They only had certain amount of stores and certain amount of counties. You had to go to a state store. And I remember being so upset about that because I didn't know where the hell they were. And we needed to celebrate that night because we just bought a house and we needed to get drunk and we needed to black out, you know, and my wife's, you know, she's normal. She's not affected by any addiction or anything. She's gone longer than me without a drink and she doesn't need meetings or she doesn't need fellowship and she doesn't need to tell people (laughs) about it. She just doesn't have a drink. Yeah, it's she got pregnant. She got pregnant and she hasn't had a drink since. And our kid's five now, and she hasn't had one since before she was pregnant. You know, <laughs> she doesn't have to go. Yeah, it's and I'm like, man, I couldn't do it without fellowship or without people to talk to about it. Yeah. But you know, we got out there to Pennsylvania and we both worked together in the animal field, and you know, things were going okay. You know, everything was going good. I remember the first time that I thought maybe I should slow down drinking was um, we were gonna try and have a baby. And I told her that, you know, when she gets pregnant, I'll stop drinking for the whole pregnancy. And because it was starting to become a problem, you know, I was missing work a few days, you know, I go into work shaky, things like that. Like the drinking was picking up. She got pregnant and 10 minutes later, I was doing like celebration shots and the, you know, by myself sitting there, I was the big guy where, you know, she would be really upset about that and I was a big hider of the booze in the house you know whether it be the back of the toilet bowl even in high school I learned that we had you know the heat registers the hot air returns in the house that are up at the top you can tie fishing line around the bottle and then drop the bottle in there and tie it around the heat register and you can't see the fishing line so that was a easy place to hide it you know I went so far as we had a um snowstorm up there in the Poconos and ran out of booze and we were trapped up there for two days without anything I was miserable went and bought a brand new gas can and put a half gallon of vodka in the gas can and put that out in the shed so that was like the emergency just in case Mm. so her whole pregnancy and everything you know I was really starting to go bad really starting to drink thinking that when our son was born that would solve it you know, I would have another person that was a hold of me and, you know, like he needed me there. That's going to fix me. It didn't fix me. It like, I just kept getting worse. You know, I thought, I thought babies were the coolest because I can look like a good partner, a good dad. Cause I'll get up with them at 4.00 AM when he's crying because I can mix a drink while he's having a bottle. Cause no one's around to watch me at 4.00 AM and I can get a good drunk on and then he falls asleep, takes a nap until noon. I can fall back asleep and just say, oh, I'm tired. I was up with him all night. And then I can get a second drunk on afterwards and, you know, then take his afternoon nap and I could pass out for a little bit. Looking back, it's really sad. But when I was living that moment, it was 
normal, completely fine. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. The thing that really changed it around was um, one weekend, it was a Sunday and I'd been drinking all weekend. You know, I would drink sun up to sundown and then wake up in the middle of the night and drink on weekends too. And I don't remember this Sunday. My wife had to tell me about it, you know, later on, but she was carrying him down the stairs and she slipped and fell. And I ran over to them, made sure they were okay. Like I threw like the kitchen table up against the wall because I was just stumbling all over. And I don't remember making sure they were okay. I didn't remember any of that. I woke up the next morning, like, why is the kitchen table over here? You know, what's going on? Like, why, why are you putting ice on your back? Like what's, what happened? And that's what opened my eyes that morning. I got on, I rolled over after she told me what happened that I Googled help with alcohol. And I found a treatment center that was about 45 minutes north. I called them and they said, be here by 10 and you can get in. And um, that's what I did. I was there at 10. The hardest thing I could do was going there. I remember doing my intake and treatment separated from my wife and my son coming out of the intake room and she's sitting on the sofa in the waiting room and she's just crying. The baby's crying. I'm sitting here thinking like, what have I done? You know, I'm, I'm trying to stay positive and say, you know, well, I need to do this. Like this is, this has to be done. And, you know, it was then that she said, you don't get it. You're going to miss his first birthday. You're going to be here for 30 days. I'm going to miss my first, my son's first birthday party. And that at that moment, I knew I had to miss that birthday. If I, if I thought, I could go back and be around it. I wouldn't be around for birthdays too through however many more I get to be a part of. And that was the first step that I took was right there. It's just committing to it. And um, I did my treatment, you know, I completed it um, the way things work out, you know, insurance and things like that. They didn't want to cover me for a full 28 days. They covered me for 14, the rehab picked up the bill for another six days. So I could at least get 20 days in. And then I got out two days before my kid's birthday. So I got to be there um, for his birthday. That's like serendipity, man. I I commend you for making the very hard choice, thinking that you were going to be in past your son's first birthday and staying committed to the program that you, you signed up for. Because for people listening, if like that moment, the commitment that it takes to do that and know that you that's hard. And it, I'm getting a little teared up because I know how hard that must have been to have to make that choice. And the fact that you did that, you did it, you made the choice, you stuck to your guns. As hard as that choice was, it was absolutely the life-saving choice. And even though you got out early enough to be a part of his first birthday, mentally, you had made that very important switch. I'm not trying to break you down here. That's not what I mean, but I'm for the listeners, I'm saying the, that commitment is absolutely, when you decide, you've decided. And, mm-hmm. and the one, the other thing I, I like to point out that I, that really hits hard is a lot of people look for an exterior reason or something to happen to trigger their process to begin recovery. You, you, you'd mentioned that when my son, when my wife gets pregnant, I'm going to quit drinking when he's born, then I'm going to quit drinking. And I had the same, same issues And what, what I've learned in my recovery is no matter where I go, there I am. And I, it's me. I, I have to quit for me. What it has to be, I'm quitting for me first. And you have to, you have to do it 
right now. You can't, my wife smokes. I'm going to use her as a bad example here. She's going to get upset, but she'll understand. She still smokes. And she's like, when this happens, I'm going to quit smoking. And then as soon as she says that, and I love her dearly, and she can do whatever she wants. It's not about that. But I know that she isn't there yet. If you want to quit smoking, you, you quit smoking by, you just quit fucking smoking. And it mm-hmm. sucks and it's not pleasant and it's not fun. And it's very, very hard, just like quitting drinking and quitting cocaine and quitting whatever it is. Any new habit that you're either replacing or building is incredibly difficult. That commitment that you showed by going in, thinking you're going to miss that first birthday is I get the goosebumps saying it again, because it's amazing. That is some powerful stuff. And that commitment and the best part about it, at least for me, it was like, it seems when you're when you're in the throes of the battle or the middle of the storm, you think there's no way I'm going to make it. And then something happens in your mind and you're like, I'm done. And it's not easy. It's hard. The fight is hard, but you've put it down. And now the healing begins and you use all that energy towards the recovery instead of all that energy to, you know, fill a gas can full of vodka and stick it in the shed. That's a huge deal. That's a huge tipping point. Yeah. And, and I, um, I quit smoking before treatment, like just cold Turkey quit that. Yeah. I quit, um, marijuana back in 2010, cold Turkey, just quit it. And it took a lot for me to say, well, how come I can quit those two things, but I can't put drinking down to save my life. And that was, it just took that moment and that switch. And I just had to run with it, you know, and treatment wasn't easy. Like there were nights where I would, call and just call my wife and be like, Hey, come get me. I can't do this anymore. You don't get it. It's, you know, I just can't do it. And I looking back how hard it was for her to say, no, you're doing this. You committed to this, like her to be that strong at the same time. Um, in my weakness, like, like that was huge. Um, and her support afterwards too. I got out on a Sunday. My kid's birthday was going to be on Tuesday and you know, you get discharged on Sunday, so you can leave anytime after 7 a.m. Sundays are family days that they have all the time at this treatment place. And we stayed until four o'clock. You know, we did all the family stuff. Like we didn't rush out to go home. And it was just her and I, like my son was at home. Her, her parents had come up to help her out with the kid. And um, it was just her and I, we just did the family stuff. And then I went home and I saw my kid, I saw my in-laws for half an hour, 45 minutes. And I committed to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And I went to a meeting, like, you know, I wasn't even home. Like I barely got laundry into the washing machine and, you know, gave everybody hugs. And then I was off to a meeting because I knew I had to commit to something. If I didn't figure out a way to stay sober, I was going to go right back to what it was. And I couldn't do that. Yeah, I, I hate to use cliches, but people don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. And, and I, I really think that those things, are those kinds of sayings and turns of phrase are on for a reason. And, and it's true. I believe for me, I had to have a plan of action from the time I woke up in the morning. In my routine, I was a very physical recovery. So walking, hiking, biking, boxing was a part of it as a foundation, along with doing the work, not drinking, not doing Coke, not smoking, of course. But I had to have that routine. And I wore sweatpants and t-shirts and workout shorts. 
So I could, any moment, if I got triggered, I can jump on my bike. I can go take a walk if I needed to. I could head over to boxing and do that. And I had to have that plan. And I, I had my books lined up that I would read and my podcast that I would listen to because, and not everything I should say, for me anyway, was 100% about recovery. I read books about, I love like Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy novels and things. I read history books, which I loved. I, a lot of Tony Robbins, a lot of podcasts that were about things that I loved. And the re, what I was doing, and I think this is the big part of it, and it's very true today still, you fall in love with other parts of yourself and not the ugly, dark parts of me. So now I'm about three years in, and my days are very similar to what life was like when I first recovered. I still, I, you can see me now, I'm in a white t-shirt, I just came back from boxing, and I still do all those great things. What's different about me now, though, is I spend very little time actively thinking about the fact that I'm not drinking, not doing coke or not smoking. It's just, it's in there, it's out, it's in my past, and I'm actively doing all the other right things to avoid that, those triggers creeping in, because they do pop in from time to time. In fact, oh, yeah. I had to reschedule this podcast, recording it, because I was triggered last week and I, I wasn't in the right place, as I mentioned. And what's wonderful, what starts to happen is that weight shifts. And now I live my life and I, I have to like actively think about what life was like while I was drinking. It's only been three years. I'm not getting cocky. I'm saying that the very positive nature of recovery takes over in a wonderful way. And all of a sudden, you just don't drink. It doesn't even occur to me at all. Like I it's think, I'm not, again, I keep saying I'm not getting cocky because I don't want to get cocky because you got to do the work. You can't, you can't get cocky and think you got this because that's bad stuff can happen. But mm -hmm. I find that I don't, I'm not huddled in the corner thinking about like white and I have my white knuckle days, but I'm not like, oh my God, how am I going to make it? All of a sudden my whole day goes by, a week goes by and it, the thought of an alcohol has never crossed my mind or the thought of cocaine. It's really nice. So it, yeah. it sounds like you have a similar experience where life just takes over in a positive, wonderful, magical way. Yeah. You, you choose which part of your life gets the sunlight and gets the water. That's what's going to grow. And that's, what's going to take that. over. I love that. Yeah. Absolutely. You stop, yeah. stop giving the addiction, stop giving addiction, all the attention, you know, still know it's there, but start growing in other ways. And all of a sudden you realize that it's, you know, you get a fuller life. Yeah. And it's, I say that now, but when I first got like going through, so I get out of treatment um, and Two months later, find out that my wife's pregnant with their second kid. Hooray. You know, yeah. outstanding. Cannot wait. This is going to be amazing. Um, we're both working together still. And one day she doesn't feel good. Like she thinks, you know, maybe she just didn't drink enough water type of a thing. And, you know, she's still working and we get through. And I said, well, why don't we just go to the hospital just to make sure, you know, you're about, I think she was like nine weeks in. You know, we'll just make sure everything's okay. You're not feeling good. You know, if you're dehydrated, they'll throw a line in you and you can, you know, get hydrated up and then we'll go home and see what's going. And um, so we go there and get an ultrasound and you know, it's not good when the ultrasound tech calls a doctor to come look at it when, you know, when you're sitting there, it's not, Hey, well, it'll be red in the next two hours and we'll get back to, you know, the doctors in the room with you. And, you know, the fetal heart rate was down around 30 baby's not going to make it. It's just not going to happen. I didn't even have six months or I didn't even have 60 days sober yet. And I'm already like getting thrown into it. Like I remember sharing, like everybody's like, Oh, you get this pink cloud when you're done. I'm like, man, I didn't get a pink cloud. Like I got 
life, like right away, life was thrown at me. Um, but all the bad, I got to be there and I got to be present. That strong person of my wife that said, no, I'm not picking you up from treatment. I got to be that strong person that let her cry on my shoulder and hold her hand. And I got to be sober to drive her home where before there's no guarantee I would have been sober enough to drive home after going to an ER like that. And, you know, we went home. That was the only night that I missed a meeting in my 90 and 90 um, because we were at the ER so late. I did my best. I got on and I found an old chat room where it was typed. You know, this is all pre zoom and everything. And I did a, I did a one hour chat room in a recovery chat room where we just typed back and forth and there was no video, no audio. It was just typing. So I used that to help me get through it. Just strangers on the other side of a keyboard that night helped me get through it. The next day, you know, we go to the doctor and, you know, we decide that, you know, she has to have surgery. She's not going to be able to, you know, pass on her own. Yeah. And we schedule the surgery for the next day. And, you know, we're in Pennsylvania still. So, you know, 12 hours from where we grew up and we're sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the doctor to come in, waiting for the surgery. It keeps getting pushed back. We were supposed to go at nine o'clock. Then it got pushed back till 11 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock. Finally at four o'clock, you know, that's the time that's coming in. And while it's getting pushed back, a new doctor is going to do it. So a new doctor keeps coming on every time and saying, we're going to get you in when we have an OR, we're going to get you in. And the final doctor that came in, he comes in the room and introduces himself. And he looks at me and says, where do I know you from? I'm like, there's, you don't know me. You know, we were born in Michigan. Um, You know, we're out here in Pennsylvania. There's no way, you know, me. Um, He's like, well, what part of Michigan? And I told him, you know, I was in Saginaw, Michigan, where I grew up. And he said, really, I did my residency in Saginaw. And I worked in an ER in the same place he did his emergency room rotation. And him and I used to talk quite a bit when he was in the hospital. And now he's our doctor doing my wife's surgery um, for a miscarriage, you know, 10 years later after I've worked with, you know, it's been 10 years since I've even talked to him. And he just happened to recognize me. And how does a kid, I'm from Saginaw, he's from Uganda. We both meet in Saginaw just by chance of me working in an ER, him doing rounds. And then 10 years later, after getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, he's the doctor that comes in to do the surgery. And he saw how rough my wife was. And he said, just come with me. He said, you can come with us. Just if anybody asks, tell them you're a student. Like, just come with me. So I got to be there and hold my wife's hand when she was going under, when she was waking up, I got to be there and that would not have ever happened before. Like I would have gotten in the way of that. You know, I would have found a way not to have to deal with that. And for that to happen like that still now that just gives you like the goosebumps, like how does all that line up for that to happen? Like, it feels like it's a movie or a story, but you know, it's, it's weird. Him and I have talked quite a few times afterwards about, you know, what that meant and early recovery and things like that and how that really helped just cement it in that I just have to get out of my way. And, you know, the AA thing of let somebody, something else run my life for a while. And that's what I did. Um, It's amazing that that happened like that, something so depressing, but I got to be there for her and I got to hold her hand. The serendipity of recovery is magical. 
in that respect, what you just described. And everyone in recovery will starts to have those moments where you, because because you're actively participating in your life with intention and purpose, you're not hiding anymore from your emotions. You're not dulling your emotions with drugs or alcohol and you, you're present. And as simple as it sounds to say that, it is absolutely true. You're there for everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you deal with it directly. And it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then you realize you're not going to die because you felt an emotion. You're not going to die because you're like, angry or upset. You're going to be just fine. And then it took a while for me to learn that too. Like I would spend my days either celebrating or in misery with drinks in my hand. Let's, I'm, I'm celebrating. Let's get drunk. I'm sad. Let's get drunk. And you know, that would just go round and round and round because I was always one of those two things usually. And what you just described being the serent, like that's one of my other guests called that a God wink where you were given a God wink and you were, you were available for, to receive it and then to participate in that wonderful, let me rephrase that. And that, in that moment, I'm not going to say wonderful because it's a very sad moment, but you being able to be present for your wife when she was going under and then coming out is huge. And that, sir, is everything. And it's amazing that yeah. you were able to be there for that. Mm -hmm. And I still remember her coming out. Like the first thing that she said was, how's the baby? Like she knew we were going in and it just, you know, when you're coming out of the anesthesia and stuff, your mind's like her mind was set that she was pregnant and having a kid. Like, and I got to be the one to answer that, and explain it to her, you know, not a stranger, not a nurse that she's never met. Like I got to be there and hold her hand mind her be there as it was starting to come back into, you know, reality and what was actually going on. And it, it didn't stop there. We had two more miscarriages and, um, in the next year, like she was pregnant three times within two years. And we had two more miscarriages, two more surgeries, two more being there. And that's when, after we had the third one, we decided that it was time to maybe move back home, get closer to family. So we're not dealing with all this by ourselves. Um, we're not doing it all by ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, we put our house up for sale and it took almost a whole year to sell. It wasn't the market it is now. Like our house just sat there and sat there, but we got home when we were, you know, when we were supposed to, she got pregnant again, right before we left. And I remember we actually, we had the U-Haul with, you know, the big 30 foot or whatever, the big one they can. Yeah. We had that. I had a car trailer with my car on the back of it. She had the car with the dogs, the cats and our son in her car. And like a goldfish. We were, yeah. And we were at the hospital that day. We were driving to move back because we still had the insurance through the workplace that we had. And we, she was still under the care. So she had the ultrasound before we left to make sure that there was a heartbeat. And yeah. we got to see a heartbeat as we were leaving Pennsylvania, moving back home. Um, and we got home and, you know, things were okay. You know, we moved home. Um, we stayed with my parents for a little while. We found a house, bought a house. My family, extended family is really close. Like, especially, you know, I have an aunt and an uncle and two cousins where we're all around the same age. And, you know, I would call my cousins more siblings than anything sure. else. You know, they're right on the same level as my two, uh, you know, blood brothers, like, my little cousin, she was uh, great underneath me growing up. We went to the same high school and, you know, she would do the old, well, I'll, you know, I need to go home and we'd get out of school for an hour because she couldn't drive. So, you know, she'd have to run home to go get stuff from, from home and we'd go out to eat lunch and, you know, yeah. we were, you know, like really close. 
and her mom helped raise, you know, helped raise us. Um, you know, she was there. She was like that second mom that we had when we moved home, you know, she had a extremely rare cancer that she had melanoma in her eye. Um, so like skin cancer in the eye and got it all taken care of, went through treatments and everything. And within six months, she was dead. It went to her liver and she was gone. Extremely sad, but I got to be, you know, she was on home hospice type of a thing for the last few weeks. I got to be there and do the third shift and help her get up and help her do what she needed to do so that my cousins and my uncle could get their sleep. You know, I got to help as much as I could, you know, I got to, I get to be there for the worst, not only the best. And that's the part about getting sober. We don't get to pick what we're there for. We're there for it all. You're there for everything. Yeah. We just have to choose to be there for other people. And that's, that's what I did. And, you know, she passed and that was really hard, but you know, we're still still close with the family. The cousins are still close. You know, there's been mix ups with the families and, you know, Ever as any family does, everybody fights and things like that. But, you know, we're all still close and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like they're my biggest supporters. You know, every time I get, you know, a year, the next year on my sobriety, like my cousins are texting me and calling me, you know, my brothers, my family, my uncle, like they're all, all in it with me and it's beautiful. And that's where I kind of, you know, I was working with animals. I loved working with animals, but I didn't, I didn't get that feeling in your gut you, that you're doing something that you want to do. Um, so I decided I needed to do something different and I wanted to work with people struggling with addiction or struggling to get into recovery. And I took a online, you know, recovery coaching course and got certified and started doing that. Um, and that's what I do now. I'm full-time. I work for three different places, two part-time, one full-time um, recovery coaching. And it's, it's amazing. It's something that I couldn't see myself doing anything different. Um, yeah. I'm meeting people at their absolute worst. These people are in Michigan. We have a program where they can, anybody can go into participating police stations and say that they need help. They're struggling. And the police officers can't press charges for any drugs they have or any paraphernalia. They call the number and they get hooked up with one of us that's in the area. And that's what I get to do now is I get to see what's going on and help them to find treatment. When they get out of treatment, I help them get to their sober living homes. I help them do whatever they can. Most of the population at the one job is homeless. And with COVID right now, the treatment centers are um, they're trying to test before they get in so that they're not having an outbreak of COVID. In there. Sure. And when you're homeless, you know, what are you going to do? You're waiting for a test. The only thing you have are, you know, your drugs. And a lot of it's the opioids, a lot of it's heroin. My job at that point becomes keeping that person alive long enough to get into treatment. You know, I'm connecting them with resources to get them a motel room. I'm making sure that they have, you know, fentanyl test strips, Narcan, like I'm not telling them not to use because anybody can tell anybody not to use. You're going to do whatever you want. I'm telling them whatever they do, I need them to be safe because I need them to be alive in five days. And that's something that when you help someone through it, and it can be extremely hard because the majority of them, they'll make it to treatment, then they drop out. You never hear from them again. You know what's going on. 
but that one person that shoots me a text and says, Hey, I got a hundred days sober today. And amazing. Um, and then knowing that that person was literally on the streets and didn't know what he was going to do 101 days ago, like had no clue what was going to happen with his life. And the way I look at it is I don't take credit for it. It's not me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just trying to help somebody. I'm trying to just trying to leave with love. Um, if I start taking credit, I start thinking, yeah, I did that. I helped that. Like my ego is going to be too big to fit through the door. And right. I try and stay extremely humble when I'm helping these people. Um, because if I take the credit for that one person getting a hundred days, that means that those 50 people that didn't make it or that died, I have to start taking the burden of that too. And I can't, that's not an even trade-off for, you know, I can only do so much. I have to make sure I know what's going on. I have to protect myself and just be there and meet people with love because anybody, I mean, you know, and probably most of the listeners know if they're in recovery now, when you're at that moment ready to go into recovery, you don't even love yourself. You're just, you're doing it for family. You're doing it for court. You're doing it because you can't, you don't have a place to sleep. You're doing it for tens of thousands of other reasons, but on the inside, you're still not cool with who's there. Like you don't love that person. Like I didn't love that person that was inside. You know, I just, I got four years in March of this past year and I'm still like, I'm in therapy. I'm on SSRIs. Like my depression's still bad, you know, like, you know, even in recovery, there were times where I was, you know, that depressive suicidal ideation that I had to deal with and thinking that like all that stuff was never going to end, but it's being open. It's accepting the help. It's therapy. It's, you know, it's 12 step. It's God. It's, it's whatever works yes. um, for each person. And that's what I kind of preach. That's a beautiful thing about doing recovery mentorship or recovery coaching is I'm not a sponsor. So I'm not pushing someone in to do the 12 steps. I'm a person that sits back and I have a conversation with this person for an hour or two. And I can get kind of what their leadings are, what they want. And I can guide them into the right path that they choose, whether it be medicated assisted or, you know, recovery Dharma, yeah. 12 step, all those things. And that's the beauty of it. Um, not everybody takes the same path. I am recovery agnostic in that I'm happy that people are in recovery. I don't care how you got there or what gets you through it. Do you think? And I think that that's the magical part. I would never be so bold as to tell people what they need to do. I, I would never, I'd like to give love, give sunlight, receive it and in help in any way that I can. And that that's the main goal of the show is to hear stories like yours. Um, what a powerful story, Mike. I Just in closing, is there a way for anyone to reach out to you to, uh, if they have questions or would like to speak to you, I think it'd be wonderful if they were able to do so. I will put all of your contact details, of course, in the show notes. But if there's anything yeah. you'd like to say just in closing to anyone listening about where they can or how they could reach out to you, I would love to have you do that. I have a Google number that goes right to my cell phone number that anybody can call, text, anything like that. It's 989-632-5133. Reach out. You know, just talk. That's all you have to do. You know, I'm on... Instagram is really the only thing I'm really on you know, yeah. recovery Mike on that you can reach out to me on there but I'm just 
if you don't love yourself, you're worth it. Is like the biggest thing. Like, let someone else love you until you can learn to love yourself. And I'm not here to tell you that it's gonna take 90 days, 30 days, three years, five years, 10 years. It's gonna take as long as it's supposed to. But let someone else hold you and love you and be there for you. And, you know, get involved with recovery. It's a lot easier to do it if you can talk to other people in recovery every once in a while. I love it, Mike. Thank you very much for being part of the show, buddy. I really appreciate it. It has been an honor to know you. I've been lucky enough to participate in your Zoom meetings, as I mentioned at the beginning of our episode here today on our show, and I got a lot out of that. So thank you for that, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course.